0: Hello and welcome to the first episode of Gallo Vault Sessions, a new podcast series brought to you by Gallo Music in collaboration with Gonjo. In this podcast, we chat with artists, label execs, radio veterans and thinkers as we explore the backstories and overlooked tapes from the Gallo Music Vault and reflect on the ways music shapes culture and how our culture has been shaped by music. In today's episode, we take a look at the story of Gallo music as we celebrate Gallo's 95th anniversary and learn about some key moments in South Africa's recording industry history. We're joined by five people who have dedicated their lives to developing and understanding the South African music industry. Rob Allingham, Mike Swaratle, Anto Stella, Iva Harberger, and Sipo Sitole, all of whom have played a pivotal role in Gallo music's trajectory over the years. But before we start our story, we have a quick note from our producer. It's important to note that much of the contemporary language of the recording industry continues to be influenced by South Africa's apartheid racial classifications and the South African Broadcasting Corporation's policies under the apartheid regime. We are aware that some of the language used by guests in this series is outdated, and in some cases, pejorative, and we see it as our duty to critically unpack these nuanced connections so that we can imagine new language for the recording industry on the continent. For an in-depth view of this topic, look out for episode two of the Gallo Vault Sessions podcast. It's the early 1930s and the Union of South Africa is experiencing life under British colonial rule. The Native Land Act, which permits white people, who constitute 20% of the population, to control 90% of the land, has been in effect for two decades and would continue to be a cornerstone of legalized racial discrimination under the Afrikaner nationalist government, under what we now call apartheid. White women have just gotten the vote and, in effect, diminishing the weight of the black vote from 3.1% to 1.4%. The first restrictions against the urbanization of black women are introduced against the backdrop of a racialized labor migration onto the gold mines of Johannesburg. And European immigration into South Africa is at a high. Eric Gallo, the son of an Italian immigrant, has just bought the Art Deco Revival Gallo building in downtown Johannesburg to house his company selling records, music instruments, and sheet music. The story
1: of Gallo actually is, is quite a complicated one, but okay, let's just try and put it in the most simplistic terms.
0: Gallo Music's resident archivist and historian, Rob Allingham. In
1: 1926, Eric gets the exclusive license for the Transvaal to import the American Brunswick
0: record label. At this moment, Brunswick is releasing vaudeville bands, swing jazz, and country records. In
1: 1930, he decides he wants to start making his own recordings. He starts sending musicians to England to record both Afrikaans and African to create his own first recordings on his singer record label. My name's Rob Allingham. I've lived in South Africa since 1975. Originally, the plan was I was going to come here for six months to work as a stoker on steam locomotives on the railways here, and uh, I just never left. But my other fanaticism, other than uh, steam locomotives and and railways, was music. By the time I came here, I was in my mid-20s, and I'd basically been a diehard record collector since about the age of 12. so when i came to south africa i knew absolutely nothing about south african music but you know those kind of collector instincts started cutting in and there was just all this music which was totally strange to me that i absolutely fell in love with it was strange to me but it was also familiar american music has had a very very heavy influence specifically african-american music it's had a very, very heavy influence on South Africa's musical development basically for about the last 150 plus years. So the music was strange, but yet it was kind of familiar. And I think it was that that sort of attracted me to it. And then I just got very, very curious about the history of it. I started just doing kind of private research. You know, where were these records recorded? Who were these musicians? Eventually, this led to a job as a an archivist at Gallo. And I am now, well, I'm the resident Gallo music historian and archivist. Going back to the beginnings of the South African recording industry, which really starts in, the, in about 1930, the record companies recorded Afrikaans music and they recorded African music. They did not record any English South African music. The reason being that these record companies like Gallo had import deals where they could access overseas catalogs. So the thinking was basically up through about the middle 1940s, you know, why should we record local white English speaking South African musicians when there's so much better that we can instantly access from the US and America. So basically, you know, you're a white record company owner, you know absolutely nothing about African music. You've got no idea what Africans even want to listen to particularly. So in effect, you're you're almost forced to hire an actual African to tell you what to record and what to sell. I mean, it's just absolutely that simple. And at first, as as a matter of fact, in the earlier years, you didn't really hear about producers until maybe the later 60s. They were always known as talent scouts. And the first one, you can say, the very first guy who was an African talent scout would have been Griffith Mazzillowa, who was hired by Gallo in 1930, who was a a professional elocutionist by trade, wasn't even a musician.
0: In pre-television and radio days, live audiences would attend to watch and listen to an elocutionist read poetry, or passages of plays, novels, and journalistic accounts.
1: He gives a ticket to the UK, to Griffiths, with instructions to recruit some South African musicians in the UK who were mostly students at the university level studying. I mean, if you wanted to be an African doctor, you couldn't train in South Africa because the doors were closed to you because you were African. So your only choice was to actually go overseas. So off Griffiths goes. And he finds all of these, you know, Ignatius Monari and the rest of these people who aren't actually musicians, but brings him into the studio. He's already made the connection, he's already got the recording set up because he'd previously sent, you know, Afrikaans musicians to this Metropole company in the UK. And that's the beginning of the African
0: catalogue. Abutin Kiko by Griffiths Motsielloa and Ignatius Monare. Recorded in London in nineteen
2: thirty for the Gallo Singer label. In nineteen thirty
0: three. Eric Gallo invests in the first permanent recording facility in South Africa, and he's able to not just expand his local catalogue, but also earn a significant competitive advantage over his rivals in the local recording industry.
1: The very first master turned out by Gallo's new quote-unquote recording setup, uh, you know, in 1933, was, uh, was a black group recruited from City Deep Mine. The records came out as Blandy, Zabale and Company, but Blandy Zabale was the the Induna at City Deep.
0: Let's listen to Blandy, Zabale and Company, the first master pressing from South Africa. Very little is known about this pressing, but according to the International Library of African Music, the record is tagged as Mozambican. Neighboring Southern African countries have acted as labor reserves for the gold and platinum industry. At this point in our story, we'd like to introduce Bra Michael Swaratle.
3: A lot of artists were discovered at the mines, or composers were discovered at the mines, more especially uh, the one who comes from the Lesotho, KZN, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, and all that.
1: Recruiting mine workers to
3: record was something that all the record companies did here. All of them. My name is Michael Soratle. I grew up at Gelo. I started working at the warehouse, I think, uh, around 1979. Yeah, I used to recruit the composers for gallo music publishers, but... I was based as a royalties manager over the years. There was a company called Till Records, which eventually matched with Gallo under uh, an old man called Gerald Negra. So my mom was working for Gerald Megra as a domestic worker. And from there eventually that's how I got a job because it was difficult by then. It was of apartheid, you know. In
0: nineteen thirty-nine, Eric Gallo starts another record company, Gramophone Record Company, or GRC, with a man named Arnold Galembo which subsequently gets consolidated from Brunswick Gramophone House, Singer Record Company and GRC into Gallo, Africa in 1949 and finally builds his own local pressing plant. In the 1940s, the Afrikaner Nationalist Party is gaining traction and Safiatown, a freehold township on the west of Johannesburg, is still predominantly inhabited by folks racialized as black or African and colored, as were the legal classifications Sophia Town residents have a determination to construct a respectable lifestyle in the shadow of a state that is actively hostile to such ambitions, and a rich culture develops based on Shabin's informal pubs, jazz, and beer brewing. The Shabin's are one of the main forms of entertainment that grooms a cultural renaissance not dissimilar to that of Harlem in the 1920s. From here emerges the development of early Marabi and Penny Whistle jazz, Zaba, a new sound combining African melody with African-American swing and jazz which eventually evolves into what we now know as Guela From here sprung many of Gallo's most popular music acts of the era before the area state sanctioned demolition and the forced removal of its residents to make way for a white area. <laughs> Miriam Makeba, the Manhattan Brothers, the Pitch Black Follies, Dorothy Masuka, Dolly Ratebe, the Mary Blackbirds, all of whom recorded under gallo music and came up in Sofia Town <laughs>
1: If you go back to the 1950s and the in the, the African music side of, of Gallo's catalog you had a few like really big stars the, the top act that Gallo had and they were the single hottest group in African music here was the Manhattan Brothers <laughs> The Manhattan Brothers were a quartet, it was a male quartet, and the the backing would vary. You know, in some cases, as a matter of fact, in the In the earlier phase of their career, it was usually white session musicians that used to back them. And then after a certain period of time, they started using various black session musicians. The second biggest Gallo star to come out of the 1950s was Miriam Makeba. She was originally recruited by the Manhattan Brothers as a member of the group. And she made records with the Manhattan Brothers. She, wouldn't, she wasn't credited on the record, but she, she would be trading lead vocals with, uh, you know, one, either Joe Mahozzi or Nathan Mbledle, who were the two lead singers in the Manhattan Brothers. Then Gallo commissioned Miriam to create a recording group of all females which she called the Skylarks. They had another pseudonym as well, which was the Sunbeams. And then the thing that really launched her was her involvement in the King Kong jazz opera in 1959.
0: The King Kong Musical, written by Todd Machigiza and released by Gallo Record Company, had an all-black cast in what by that time was an officially racially segregated apartheid South Africa. The musical portrays the life and times of a heavyweight boxer, Ezekiel Lamini, known as King Kong. After a meteoric boxing rise, his life degenerates into drunkenness and gang violence. He kills his sweetheart and dies in prison. After being a hit in South Africa, touring for two years, during which it's seen by more than a quarter of a million people, of whom two-thirds were white. The musical also played in the West End of London in 1961, while a majority of the cast was in exile. Some of the gala-recorded musicians in the cast include Kaifis Semenya, Leta Mbulu, Benjamin Masinga, Hugh Masikela, Jonas Gwangwa, Kipi Moiketsi, Miriam Makeba, and Tandi Clarsen all of whom went on to enjoy successful careers after the show. The song Sad Times, Bad Times was considered a reference at the time to the infamous South African treason trial in Pretoria, which had begun in 1956 and lasted for more than four years before it collapsed with all the accused acquitted. Among the defendants were Albert Lutuli, African National Congress President, Secretary Walter Sisulu, Oliver Tambo, and Nelson Mandela. Let's give it a listen.
1: In the 1930s and 40s and into the 50s, when it came to African urban vocal styles, it was male dominated. So, in other words, you know, it was the Manhattan Brothers, they were the top of the stack. Then you had, you know, the African ink spots. It was like a whole genre. And then, starting in the early 1950s, it started shifting to female groups, kind of edging the male guys out. And the origins of that can be directly traced to American imports. And Gallo in particular, because the two most famous imported pop vocal groups here in the 30s was first of all the Boswell sisters, who were a close harmony female trio. Followed by the Andrews sisters in the later 1930s and early war period. People started hearing this music in the States, and local Africans started copying the style at first. They tried to do it as exactly as possible. The first group here they recorded for True Tone was the Quad Sisters, the Tandi Klassen's. At that point, it was Tandi and Pambani. And they took that close harmony vocal style. Basically, the musical alteration at first was quite slight, but of course now they're singing in, you know, Sutu or Zulu. The next step of, the, of this equation is the Skylarks, Miriam McCabe and the Skylarks. Miriam, her, her harmonies were much more, much more African, basically. The Quad Sisters' harmonies are pretty straight Western. When you start getting with, with Miriam and the Skylarks, then you start getting unique to South Africa harmonizations. And then the final sort of step of the equation there were some interim groups, but basically it was Rupert Bopape's Bakanga groups, most famously known as the Mahotela Queens. That was, you know, there you've completely abandoned your Western harmonizations. It's now something that is like harmonizations that are unique to South Africa. And then, you know, after the Mahotela Queens, then you had Izan which also had the Gallo connection because. They were recorded by Hamilton and Zamande, who ran the
0: gramophone record company division of Gallo Africa. Isn't Tom Bizesu Manje with Ngina Kile?
2: Ngina Kile, Ngina Kile, Senia Bukega. Ngina Kile, Ngina Kile, Senia Bukega. Ngina Kile, Ngina Kile, i
1: On the other side of the equation, you had what people at the time just referred to, well, this is just, you know, it's Afrikaans music. But in fact, what it was, it was American country music, altered marginally from a musical standpoint, but obviously, you know, with Afrikaans lyrics. And this was sometimes referred to as as Trana Trekkers. Trana Trekkers. Tear poems. The origin of this style is directly related to Gallo, because... The Brunswick label in America had a very, very big country catalog that started up in about nineteen twenty seven, and Gallo imported those Brunswick country records and they sold
4: Arminas <laughs>
1: Blue these close harmony, male duet style, and like I say, the subject was always, you know, the letter edged in black. So, you can just you can just play these records. I mean, there's, there's
0: no doubt about where, where the style came from. One of the big Afrikaans groups that developed this U.S. country-influenced close harmony style after the Second World War were a wildly popular group called the Four
2: Maar nou in plek van 'n ruids gewaad trekkelen
1: The other big big star that came out of that era was Spokes Masciani. Now, Spokes did not start recording with Gallo. He started recording with True Tone. Now, as it happened, the owner of True Tone eventually sold the company to Gallo in 1964. But 10 years prior, uh, Spokes had made his first you know, records for, for True Tone, and it was one of the very first penny whistle records. It was called Ace Blues, and it was an incredibly best selling record of its of its era. It wouldn't surprise me if it sold eventually, say about a hundred thousand copies. In nineteen fifty-eight, he was lured to start recording for Gallup and continued both as a very, very successful Penny Whistle musician, but also he was the critical figure who then started playing saxophone.
3: He was the first uh, black artist to get composers royalties. Black music, black composers were not getting composers royalties. It was only for whites. After recording, they were paid a session fee.
1: Virtually everybody in the industry, regardless of whether they were offering cons or English or whatever, everybody worked on a flat fee basis. And then you start getting, you know, Throughout the 50s, you started getting a few really popular Afrikaans musicians would start to, would get royalty deals. The way that Gallo lured Spokes out of True Tone into Gallo is that he was the first African musician to sign a royalty deal. He was such a such a seminal figure in this whole Kwela movement that pretty soon all of his competing penny whistler musicians also started taking up the saxophone, and that was the beginning of this genre that we call sax jive, that was a very, very major component of, you know, African urban music, basically from, you know, about 1960, well into the 1970s. Companies weren't only recording African urban music. Starting as far back, actually as as you know, the beginnings of the of the industry in the 1930s, they also started recording what are now referred to as neo traditional musicians. Gallo's first hit, as it were, uh, you know, neo traditional musician was a guy that started making records in 1940. There's a man named Chwatla Makala, and he was based in Kronstadt, but he was a Sutu neo-traditional musician who played concertina and sang. And his records were incredibly popular. Well, we we can assume they were incredibly unpopular because he, he made so many recordings. You know, <laughs> sales sales figures of records back in that era, just for the most part, don't Exist. It's all thumbs up. But if you got a situation where a guy continues to record, you can damn well be certain that those records were selling
0: very, very well. So let's listen to Dwatla (laughs) Makala.
2: la tanu de no jupa muri de ni soriya banna ibege gabel khalas neder yapacak molaye na bere yapacak molaye muzaria zozimba janyana daleti bazadi
0: Let's take a quick break and hear a word from our media sponsors, Sowetan and Sowetan Live. The Sowetan is a proudly South African news, lifestyle and entertainment publication that dates back to the early 80s with its roots as a liberation struggle newspaper. It is still one of Mzanzi's most influential platforms of trusted journalism with over three million unique readers a month, promoting social activism and celebrating excellence. Pick up a copy daily at your nearest newspaper outlet nationwide or log on to Sowetan Live and be a part of the rhythm of the nation. You're listening to Gallo Vault Sessions, a new podcast series brought to you by Gallo Music in collaboration with Gonjo. Let's continue to take a look at the story of Gallo Music as we celebrate Gallo's 95th anniversary and learn about some of the key moments in South Africa's recording industry history. (laughs) We're chatting
1: with Rob Allingham. As time went on, you started getting larger and larger neo-traditional catalogs. And of course, the thing that really sparked it off was in the early 1960s, when the so-called Bantu radio system was established. It was these ethnically exclusive radio stations that were set up. So, you know, you had a Zulu service, and you had a Xhosa service, and you had a Swana service, you know, whatever. The radio stations were instructed to only play material in that particular language. And the record companies stepped up to the fore to fill the gap there.
0: In the 1960s, Life under apartheid is intensifying, and on March 21st, 1960, police officers opened fire on a group of peaceful protesters in a black township on the east outskirts of Johannesburg. There were a total of 249 casualties in what has been coined the Sharpeville Massacre. After the Sharpeville Massacre, the South African music industry is met with a blow as many artists go into exile and Gallo Music finds itself contesting with international cultural boycotts and a national broadcaster steeped in censorship. Ex-Gallo Music MD, Ivor Haberger.
4: You know, before we knew it, there was Sharple, okay, and, uh, you know, it it was terrible in those days and we we found a lot of people after Sharple left the country. There was this sudden this is going to explode and a lot of people actually left and the music industry I think went through a downside during that period nothing really was happening people were too worried about the politics in the country and then only after that I think that people start you know working on songs and doing songs you know I think sharpfall came very quickly I don't think people expected it. I'm Ivor Haberger. I spent 40 years at Gallo Record Company or Gallo Africa, doing various jobs during that period and eventually leaving as the Managing Director when I turned 60. I had this love for music and trying to hear the hits and which was going to be the hits. At that time we had a, a promo vehicle with big speakers on and we used to fetch me at five o'clock in the morning and off we went to Marabastadt and we used to blast it the whole time and we had little tickets that we used to give out to the customers coming off the, the buses and the trains and eventually those people used to go into the stores into Marabastadt and purchase the stuff directly. In the early days you had to submit your lyrics to the SABC And they used to sort of tick it off. So you have to write down the lyrics, take it with your sample to the SABC, and they would authorize it. And a lot of songs were banned. You know, it it was, yeah, you spent a lot of money in the studio and getting things together. They didn't like it. And not just on the local side. And um, I happened to be at a Club Med on one of the islands. And, of course, I used to go in and listen to the music. I heard the song going Love To Love You Baby but I took the details because I said we've got a hit record here and I said I'd like to sign this lady by the name of Donna Summer and I want the album Love To Love You Baby Love To Love You Baby had breathing And we sold 100,000 of Donna Summer's album. The next thing is the SABC banned the song because of the heavy breathing. We had to then take the breathing off and we advertised it that the record had been banned, but it's still available without the breathing.
0: This really illustrates the conservative environment local labels were operating under at the time. Fast forward to the 1970s and 80s, it's the height of apartheid and local Gallo music artists find ways to simultaneously disguise and disseminate their politics through music. A prime example of this was the widely successful reggae artist, the late Lucky Dube, ex-Gallo MD, Antostella.
5: He needed to find a um, genre of music that he could tell his story and talk about the massive injustice of apartheid and without getting, you know, banned everywhere. And so I think that for him as a person, that was a natural progression for him to move into a genre of music that could have some social impact. Lucky was by that stage a big Peter Tosh fan.
4: You know, when they came to me and they said to me,
5: you want to do a Lucky Dube reggae album? I
4: said,
0: are you crazy? I said, reggae comes from the Caribbean. At this point, Lucky Dube was recording as a Mbakanga artist.
2: This is a song called Slave!
4: not South African music and I hooed and hard and eventually Richard Saluma persuaded us to do a reggae album, they recorded the album and it came out unbelievably well.
5: It really got the attention of the music industry and of the fans and then he followed it up and I think that when the Slave album came out and you know Together as One it was just a Just a whole new phenomena. And reggae, the the spirit of reggae was just perfect at the time. When I started out, I was in the midst of Serafina. Serafina was the big musical that was coming out of Africa at the time. Serafina for me at the time was like such an incredible political moment in the history of music. You know, I remember being at the Market Theatre launching and Winnie Mandela came and it was like, all of these security guards. And I was so immensely proud of Gallo that they were so progressive. Gallo fought for democracy. The Gallo owners at the time were really at the forefront of politics. And it was quite a feat to put on Serafina at that time at the market theater. because you know, the old regime was still very much had its tentacles down. The very first musical that I ever saw on stage was Epitombi. When I was still that age, I mean, I don't even think I was into high school at the time. And I remember begging my parents to take me back to the show, I don't know how many times. And it was always Margaret Sangana that, like, blew me away. Released
0: in 1974, the Ipintombi musical, originally released on Gallo, tells the story of a young black immigrant laborer leaving his wife and village to work on the
5: mines of Johannesburg. Bertha Ignas... Wrote the songs, a white Jewish woman wrote the songs, and there was always a fight about the publishing because I mean, what about the Zulu interpretation of the songs? And then that's why I think it hasn't it hasn't had the historical profile that a lot of the other stage musicals have had along the way. If we talk about Margaret Sangano, let's just remember the career that she had and and I think that she is so long. I mean she just doesn't have the respect that she deserves in this industry. Mm-hmm. Um, And she was also signed to Gallo, you know, so it's something that also irritates me. But anyway, that's another story. And unfortunately, that was women in the industry.
0: In this era of Gallo music, we begin to see a boom of artists pulling massive crowds and sales both locally and internationally, despite the cultural boycotts and racial segregation of audiences. Harari, Sipo Sticks Mabuse, Mango Groove, Ray Piri and Stimela, Soul Brothers, Ladysmith Black Mambazo, and
5: Matlatini and the Mahotela Queens. The South African music scene was really booming in the 70s, and the kind of boom with hot sticks and that was started really in the late 70s into the early 80s. We need to remember that Gallo was a very progressive company. In the time of the 80s and the 70s, Gallo was very, very involved in a really fighting for democracy. Its artists were at the front of changing the country. You know, even sitting with Stimela, I love the music. But the message has got deeper and deeper and deeper until I realized that this is something that a white person can't even identify with, no matter how bad your life has been. It has no comparison. In the
2: bad news, story, the story.
5: And so, yeah, you know, racism's in the white community. Sometimes that pain is so deep. And so music has been... The journey for a lot of South Africans, um, and maybe even some white South Africans, I'm not sure I can't talk for everybody, but has been therapeutical. And music, and specifically that era of music, created such harmony and unity in a country that was so torn apart. Lucky released Prisoner. I mean, you know, Mandela was just come out. It was just a, a good play on words, you know, to get that album, to get to the sales that it did. There was so much that the entire country was trying to move towards. And music, I think music was very, very integral as part of leading the country to that.
0: The Unfinished Story by Stimela. Hey!
2: Gala. Gala. when the prophecy
1: begun. gone when the whisper in the deep, speak up to mind phi sala
3: i'll be sala
0: In 1994, South Africa holds its first democratic elections. The cultural boycotts are lifted and the local music landscape explodes. Hey,
2: beautiful girl, sing. Hey, baby, hey. Hey, 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 beautiful girl. Hey, baby, hey, sing. Hey, baby, Hey, hey,
5: hey. I think what happened where the dynamics shifted is that the genres of music also shifted and there was this big move to crossover. and I think that in, in that area a lot of the music that had really fought and been an integral part of the political narrative in South Africa got left by the wayside and they had continuously got invited to perform overseas because at that stage South Africa was this amazing country that had just come through their first democratic election, and so it was time to celebrate. But more than anything, I think, of course, all eyes were on South Africa because we had been through this journey where Madiba had been released, and so the international audience appreciated more traditional sound. And we started moving towards more pop sounds. But also it was also the downfall, right? Prior to that, people used to go see so much South African music, and then it just started fading. You know, when the likes of Matlatini and Lucky and Mambaza were doing more tours internationally than they were doing locally. Prior to that, artists were already performing... You had PJ Powers performing at Jabalani Theatre. You had Hotline really, really happening. You had Lucky performing at a number of concerts that had a completely mixed audience. You had Stimela, people traveling from overseas to see a group like Stimela. So I think that we were also passionate about the music and we were also passionate about the need to change the country that marketing became quite easy. And also, we came out of an era where SABC were banning everything. So, we had a bit of a golden age of radio where it wasn't. We didn't need to force radio to play music and for quotas because people want to celebrate. It was a bit of a utopia. The 90s were, let's just be honest, in the industry. It was a boom for the industry in South Africa because it was also, I mean, not that it wasn't booming before that, but the genres of music made it easier for us in terms of marketing strategies. But even now, as we move forward, and you talk about a generation that is still struggling with white privilege and... There was a time when our music united South Africa and we were in this utopia and it's really, really hard to, to put this in the context of music. We had been through this amazing surge of music that was resonating across we, we called it crossover music we even had a name for it. Uh, Bekanga was fashionable in its time it was a magens, You know, everybody was listening to it and reggae was very fashionable at the time when politically we needed to put up the fight and Stimela who for me was probably one of the most underrated bands because their musicianship is just so phenomenal. Where they are deciding your
6: fate. Where they are deciding my fate. Where they are
2: deciding our
5: fate. That glitter, that that sound became aged. Gallo became the Motown Records of South Africa. That's what they did. Amazing catalogue, which then started resonating to the rest of the world. And whatever we tried from an urban perspective, there was no passion. I, I, I will say that because it's my personal opinion. Please don't take it as gallows. The concept
3: of fear. Let us cross over.
2: Let us break the barrier. Which is keeping you from understanding me.
5: Because fear... Gallo started losing its shine. And it's, it's no secret. They lost their shine. I think when the quieto genre came in, we had the trompe. we missed the quieto bus completely. Because we were just not in touch, and and there's no one person to blame. We did not see the genre coming, because we had lost touch with what was happening in the townships. This
0: is what the people are saying.
5: One day when I retire, this is what I want to do. I want to go through the soundtrack of my life and remember at each time where something profound happened. And Gallo is that archive for the first, at least up until I would say up until the 2000s. I think Gallo started losing its shine.
0: Them coming on a different style. Eh? While Antos maintains that Gallo Music missed the Guaito bus, Trompis releases Siguilla in 1995 and becomes influential in the sound and aesthetic of Guaito. Two of the group members had previous performing experiences as dancers in the bubblegum group of Gallo music composer Chico Twala and a third was a keyboard player for Lucky Dube before forming the group. Let's listen to the album's title track.
6: White was the biggest sound then, and everyone would go everywhere else except Carlo.
0: Let's hear from the MD of Gallo Music at the time, Sipo Sitole.
6: My name is uh, Dr. Sipo Sitole. I am the former deputy managing director of Gallo Music Group. My last day was on the 30th of September two
3: thousand and five. <speaking in Spanish> <laughs>
6: Johnny Entertainment, which owned Gallo Records, had published their financial results. Gallo Music Group financial results were not looking good. I then joined joining as head of strategy, responsible for the entertainment portfolio. And then a year later, I was then asked, do I want to stay in the holding company or do I want to go into music? I said, music. So they then sent me to Galo music group. Uh, I think this must have been like mid 2003. So I, I got there as deputy MD of the group. So I then become responsible for the local uh, label. So when I get there, I don't have any knowledge of the music business at all. All I know is that I'm a strategist. But at that time, GALO, of course, is a a legacy company of many, many years, you know? And it is a traditional record label. It is known for traditional music. It's got a history with uh, Ladies and Black Mambazo, Maotela Queens and Maslatini. Uh, the Soul Brothers, and most of the artists that had left the country and uh, had been signed to Tukalo, whether it was uh, Miriam Makeba, Dorothy Masuka, and a lot of big acts, um, see. So it, it was really a, a home for what South African music is, including music from the north, Thomas Chawuke, uh, Sichonga music. We had mpakanga back then and you know, that was the sound. And it was big. It was even big in Europe. I was lucky that when I joined Galo, that sound was still big, you know. We were still selling from the archives. It was a home for that. But also, it was maybe a bit conservative, outdated, and not in tune with the new art forms. I mean, we, had, we also had Sipo Horstix Mabusa there, but really not, in, not cool. It, it, it just needed that cool element, you know. So Kwaito, for instance, was not at Galo. I then started looking for acts that I think would really, really change the color and the character of Galo, you know. I'm saying to myself, we need to do something really fresh here, but we're going to need to take brave decisions and sign new acts.
0: The removal of political and economic sanctions greatly transforms the South African music industry. House music floods into the country and new lyrical styles emerge, influenced by hip-hop, the sound of 1980 South African pop or bubblegum and the newfound freedom of expression resulting from political liberation in the country. In the early 90s, Kwaito, with its mid-tempo dance beat, evolved from batanga, dance hall, house, disco and hip-hop, leads a post-aparte township subculture into the mainstream. And by the late 90s and early 2000s, gallo music finds itself leaning into the evolution of new hybrid, genre-bending, border-defying sounds from South Africa's black youth. Tandiswa Mazwai. Simpiwe Dana, Squatter Camp, and Pro Kid are all standout names from this era who spoke to life under a new, complex socio political dispensation. <laughs>
6: We needed to find new South African voices that can also stand tall amongst greatest world music artists. That should be judged for their musicality, not because they come from South Africa, from a previously apartheid state. With due respect to artists like Miriam Makeba, Shima Sigela and others, who really gained prominence abroad, but it's because people may have listened to them because they had a story to tell about the conditions of black people in South Africa. Maybe not necessarily about how great the music was. Not that I'm saying it wasn't, but they had an ear because of the conditions uh, from which they came, right? We needed to find artists that are just brilliant artists and nobody needed to sympathize with them. They must just be brilliant artists. I said to Charles Kuhn, who was my boss, who was the group empty? I said, I am signing artists that will have a long shelf life. There is this term that the world doesn't like, which is called world music. But I wanted our artists to be in that space. And I, I did not want to sign pop, because I felt that pop was too localized, and that I won't be able to go and present it at World Music Expo. So when I signed Tandis, so first I saw Tandis performing, uh, uh, just doing some songs, great South African songs at the Market Theatre. She was still with Bongo Maffin. And when I saw her there, I realized that there was a Tandisa that was not necessarily the same Tandisa of Bongo Maffin. You could present this artist distinct from Bongo Maffin. She had a particular sound and a particular voice. So we make an offer to her, and she took like two, three months to respond until I really like, I became impatient. I said to Antos Stella, tell her that she's got 14 days to respond. Uh, If she doesn't respond, the deal is off the table. And then she responded, so we signed her. And when I signed Tanso, Tanso then says to me, there's another artist you must hear that I really think is brilliant. Her name is Simpuetana. Simpuetana, the demo was just a cappella. At that time, Galo felt that she was old style, she was more like Sophia Town era, it wasn't going to work. I was like, no, wait till we put music on this a cappella, then you tell me what it is. We signed her. Then comes to the issue of Guaido. I say to Carlo, forget about Guaido. You've missed the boat. Let's sign hip-hop. I had heard of this group called Squatter Camp, right? Squatter Camp had released an album called Cut and Join, and it was making a buzz in the underground hip-hop uh, scene. So I approached them. We meet with Squatter Camp on a Sunday at Carlo, and we sign them on a Sunday because I had heard that... Um, EMI wanted to sign, was gonna meet with them on a Tuesday. I always say that Squatter Camp did not break because they were a great hip-hop act. They broke because they had a song that whether you were in the suburb or you were in the Squatter Camps or in the villages, people just felt great about it. that's that's the song. They broke through a song, not through a genre.
0: Let's listen to Umoya by seven-member hip-hop group Squatter Camp.
2: Tell me, who can lock it? Twenty four seven, zero hitter. Chatting the rap, we will sell it. Move and twinning. I want one Now
3: we're under pressure in this game, so shit must change. Step back or move forward, and get rearranged. You had your chance. I think it's about time we flip the page. What Squad camp, main act, headliners on the world stage.
6: And then I was um, visiting hip-hop sessions in Soweto and those hip-hop scenes were like massive and they were harsh and cruel to the artist. So you wouldn't wouldn't even last a minute on stage if you are not happening. But there was this artist called Proki. ProKid had the hip hop sessions in Soweto in his palm, you know? So I signed
2: ProKid.
6: So now we had this base of artists. Squatter Camp became the first artist to go platinum hip hop. Then there was ProKid. Then suddenly there was this crumbswell of hip hop artists coming from underground wanting to be signed to major labels because When I signed Squadra Camp, which was reluctantly so on their side, because they felt that they were selling out, hip-hop artists wanted to keep it real. They wanted to be independent, not signed to anybody. They did not want to be part of the system. And what I said to them was, never romanticize poverty. This thing that you wanna be underground, you wanna sell your music from the boot of your car, is not gonna get anywhere. What you see now today as hip-hop, is what we started at, um, at Galway. I mainstreamed hip-hop. I took hip-hop from the underground. I put it above ground. Now, there's no quieto anymore. We've just turned the tables around. So if you look at the artists, for instance, that I'm talking about, particularly uh, 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 Tandi Somerswai, Sintiwetana, they are occupying that space of saying, we are going to tell our story, and our story is going to be told by what we see and hear happening. But also it's a story of hope, because this is now just, I think, what is about 10 years into democracy? Because everyone was still hoping that we are now for the black government and uh, things are, are going to happen. But let's remind you, what is it that you are supposed to be considering, you know? So there is that story of hope for a better future and all of that. So everyone is excited, is, is inspired in their writing. When you hear the songs from Tandiswa, for instance, it's exactly about that the world changes the revolutionaries die children forget that's what he says she says and the uh, the ghetto something something and our dreams are drenched in gold that's what she says in that song
2: the world changes revolutionaries die and the children forget
5: the ghetto
6: This one is why, with me, Zalwa Ngobani. if to listen to that song, Bantibigo Street. <laughs> to her, Bantibigo Street is, is the epitome of freedom, that I'm walking on that Bantibigo Street. I might be carrying a handbag with nothing, but my pride is intact. Because I'm walking on this freedom street with my consciousness and my blackness and who I am. And that can't be it can't be measured in monetary terms.
0: Biko Street by Sampiwe Dana So
6: you're having these tensions happening of very um, conscious female singers, Afro soul singers, good writers. You also have these excited young people who just want to... But at the same time, you've got a new hip hop element that is coming from the township.
0: number one so we to
2: So artists
6: like Pro Kid, Rescue hip hop from the suburbs and take it back home, back to the township. And they said, we're gonna rap about the township, about Kasi. I then said to Carlo, if you have signed an artist, it is because you believe in the artist. So then your minimum investment for your marketing budget must be a quarter of a million. Now, <laughs> Galo had a standard marketing budget of 80,000 Rand for some reason. In that 80,000, you must do in-store promos. You must take the artists around to radio for interviews all over the country. You must put an advert in the newspaper, do a launch, you must do a video. I was like, it's not gonna work. And we pumped in money. Now, I was at Gallo from about late 2003. When I left September 2005, we had turned around the local division from a 16 16 million rand loss to 600,000 rand net profit.
2: And and
6: And Galo was the coolest record label. It had the coolest artist, young artist, the coolest sound. It was leading in the hip hop scene. It was leading in Afro soul. So the the era is a very exciting era. And at the same time, the market is hungry for new sound. Hungry for new sound. The market was worth a billion rands of physical sales of music. We were selling music CDs worth a billion rands in this country. And funny enough, it was split halfway. International repertoire was 500 million. Local repertoire was 500 million.
0: Thank you for listening to the Gallo Vault Sessions, a podcast series brought to you by Gallo Music in collaboration with Gonjo. We hope you've enjoyed traversing almost a century of Gallo and by extension, South Africa's music history. In next month's episode of the podcast, we'll explore music's role in the retribalization project of the apartheid regime through the South African Broadcasting Corporation's Radio Bantu, Gallo's African music imprints, and the emergence of independent radio in South Africa. Today's episode was researched, produced, and written by Zara Julius at Gonjo, with production support from The Good People and narration by Kaneta Kanutu. Our theme music is the song Doi Doi by Marumo, and you're listening to Kansas City by The Movers. Special thanks to Elijah Madiba from the International Library of African Music, Gwela Hobe Sekele, Rob Allingham, Antostella, Bramaik Swaratle, Iva Harberger, and Sipo Sitole. Be sure to listen to this month's curated mix by Paul Waxon, exploring 95 years of Gallo music. You can find a link to that in the show notes. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Gallo Vault Sessions, with new episodes and curated mixes monthly.